Welcome to Practice Life, the podcast devoted to the important non-clinical issues affecting the daily practice of equine veterinary medicine. Practice Life is brought to you by the American Association of Equine Practitioners. And I'm Mike Pannell, a practice owner and veterinarian, and a longtime EAP member and your host. Beringer Ingelheim's Equine Health Solutions don't just come in the form of medicine. From our vaccine and EGUS assurance programs to our equine practice enrichment program, we offer a wide range of services dedicated to helping individual veterinarians and entire practices succeed in their business environment. To learn more about all the services we offer, contact one of our expert team members by visiting bi-vetmedica.com company contact. Hi, I'm Mike Pannell, and welcome to another episode of the AEP Practice Life Podcast, brought to you by our good friends at Beringer Ingelheim. This subject this time is on something really close to the heart of all equine vets, and that is accounts receivable. I sort of asked some questions to the AEP listserv on accounts receivable, and I got responses from practice owners, associates, everybody. So this is a concern for a lot of people, and we have some new guests and new additions to the AEP Practice Life podcast, and we have a returning friend as well, too. So I'm going to let you introduce yourselves, and I am going to start on the West Coast. We'll work our way east. So uh, Dr. Wendy Kreb, welcome, Wendy. Hi. I appreciate being here. Tell us about your practice. Yeah, I'm with Ben Decoin Medical Center, which is in Central Oregon. Um, we are both a hospital and ambulatory-based practice. We're about 60% hospital and 40% ambulatory, and there are nine of us, including our interns. Excellent. Thanks. And moving east, we have uh, Dr. Patrick First. Patrick, welcome. Hey, thanks, Mike. Uh, glad to be here. Uh, yeah, I'm Patrick First. Um, I own a three-doctor practice in Mobile, Alabama with my wife. We kind of focus on sports medicine, small alternative therapies. My wife does acupuncture, chiropractic, rehab. We hired on an associate about two years ago, which has helped tremendously. So we are rapidly growing and uh, enjoying equine practice every day. Excellent. And then just moving a little bit east and down a little bit, we have Dr. Liz Steele. Welcome, Liz. Hi there. Thank you for having me. My name is Liz Steele, and I'm owner of Steele Equine Veterinary Services here in uh, South Central Florida. We've got a brick and mortar hospital here where we do about 90% of our equine work in house and about 10% uh, mobile. Focus mostly on sports medicine, recent addition of a big uh, fitness and rehabilitation component to our practice with some, some neat equipment that we added on here. Also do chiropractics, have a big podiatry component to our practice as well. So I am actually solo. I do uh, share some on-call with a local associate. Yeah, so glad to be here with you guys. Excellent. So we've got a bit of a broad spectrum. And uh, I will interject every once in a while. I try just to be a host, but we've got a, a bit of a racetrack component to our practice too. And I think I can add some insights onto that. First question I'm going to ask all three of you is, did you have that, oh my gosh, my accounts receivable is out of control moment and tell us about it and what kind of actions you took. I, I know when uh, about 10 years ago when I was looking at our accounts receivable, I was like, oh, we are in trouble. And from that, I made some radical changes, but this is about you. So Wendy, let's start with you. What, what was your like, oh boy, moment? 
Well, I would say we have uh, many crises every spring where I suddenly in the middle of April or about this time may say, oh my gosh, we've gotten too busy and we've let things slide. Our practice has always fortunately had an ethic of pay at the time of service, even since its inception a little over 20 years ago. And I have to give lots of credit to our practice manager who has really um, helped us stick to our guns on that. I appreciate that, but it, it certainly can easily get out of control for all of us when we get busy. And how about yourself, Patrick? Uh, fortunately for us, I don't think we've gotten into that uh, terrifying moment where things have uh, have slid too much. And, and I think that's because going back is when we started the practice about five and a half, six years ago. Um, I came from a practice where there was a lot of billing and a lot of pretty um, high AR left over, um, even going on months and months and months. And I learned a lot, you know, going from that. And so we started off right off the bat at collective the time of service. We do offer some wellness plans that have monthly payment options for some people. So thankfully that we didn't get into that situation. And I try really hard not to. Uh, so it always seems like uh, when a client owes you money, um, somehow they get mad at you um, whenever you're sending them a loan. So thankfully, we've not gotten in that situation. So Patrick, when you had that payment at time of service with a new practice, did you have any pushback from clients? Did anybody say, hey, that's not how my doctor did it or the doctor I used to be with did it? You know, I really did. And I was kind of expecting that because a lot of the practices in the area um, did not do that. They, you know, they did bill, but we did not have pushback. And I think a lot of that is we offer a lot of payment methods. You know, we offered, you know, all credit cards and care credit and, and we had the wellness plan too. Okay. And how about yourself, Liz? Did you ever have that, uh, well, we're in trouble, we've got to change things? Or is that just me? No, I, I definitely did. So I practiced for about 16 years. And uh, when I graduated, my, my father is a beef cattle veterinarian here in South Central Florida. So I joined his practice and, and his way of, of collecting was basically on these big ranches. They were good about paying and no one paid at the time of services that we were out on the, the ranches. So he basically billed everything. And so when I started building the equine component of the practice, we just inadvertently adopted that same thing where we were basically billing everyone. And then five or six years into being an associate, he decided to allow me to take the reins on the equine side and kind of split out that practice separate from the cattle. And so I was a a baby owner and, and learned a lot of things the hard way had very little, you know, training as far as business management goes. And so I kind of became intrigued with it and started studying how to look at your numbers and how to manage things a little bit better. And, but it wasn't until a couple of years ago when we were uh, completing this big expansion project here at our facility that I was really looking over the numbers and realized that accounts receivable of what was outstanding was unbelievably high, embarrassingly high. And I I guess the longer you're out, the more you get mad about, you know, more mad at myself for allowing, you know, people to be able to walk into a feed store and know that they're going to pay for that feed and hay when they leave. But yeah, they can walk into my clinic for elective procedures and walk out without paying for it. You know, that was my turning point was, okay, I have 65,000 plus out of blood, sweat, and tears that, you know, I haven't been paid for. And so I used the expansion project here as an excuse 
to basically approach all of our entire clientele and say there's going to be a lot of changes. And one of them is our new policy on payment method. And so we basically said, with absolutely no exceptions, payment is due at the time of services. In fact, you have to keep a card on file with permission of us to run that at the time of services, unless you specify that you want to pay cash or check at that time. And there's no exception to that. In fact, if you don't agree with that policy, then you can kindly find someone else who has a different policy than that. And honestly, it went fantastic. It's been a game changer for us. So awesome. And how do you store the credit cards? I'm sure people are listening to that and going, isn't it illegal to store credit cards? Yeah. And so that's been a little bit of a sticky point with us. And we're still adapting a way to safely and legally do that. Mm -hmm. So we have a couple of safeguards in place for how we store them. And in their credit card authorization form that they fill out each year, they basically give us permission to keep that on file. But that is actually, a, you know, an area that I think is a little bit of a gray area for veterinary clinics. And I'd love to hear feedback from anybody else who has a really great way to legally and safely store that better than, than what we have going on. Wendy, uh, do you have any thoughts on that? I do. Liz, we were in the same situation as you when we started storing the credit card numbers. We just did it sort of under their account, under notes. And then came to realize, you know, that it was a no-no and it did give us a lot of liability um, should an employee or somebody hack in and and use those. We ended up, um, right now we're in a little different system, but our credit card processor at the time, Heartland has a PCI compliant credit card storage system. So you do store those numbers, but you can only actually see the last four digits. Anybody that can log in can only see those. And so it's still very easy for us to store them and run them but it is compliant and another layer of safety. And it didn't cost us anything extra beyond the processing. How about yourself, Patrick? How do you uh, go about managing the credit cards for clients? Yeah, so, so exactly the same thing as what Wendy said. We, we just store it through a merchant processor. So um, we use either, we actually use two, we use Square as well as we've got Car Connect through our, our practice software. And I think it stores it pretty safely there. And kind of the same thing, you can't see the whole card number it's stored to seeing the last four. And um, we haven't had any any issues with it, but it is really handy just having a credit card on file for a client. And it, you know, you really don't have to have even the awkwardness or the drama or of running a card right in front of them even. So do either of the three of you, any of the three of you use like on-site, like a square reader or any other kind of system so the vets can be paid at the time of service on the farm? Mike, I'll say that we got one with the intent to use it on the farm. and. Honestly, after using it a few times, realized it was just a lot easier and uh, more efficient to have the office staff run the cards back at the office rather than spending, you know, 10 or 15 minutes to have the invoice completely ready on the farm there for the client and then take the time to mess with the technology. Yeah, that's sort of our experience as well, too. You know, in terms of we've been talking a lot about keeping credit cards on file and having client service agreements so we can run the credit card after the service. Are you, any of you doing anything differently to make sure your accounts receivable is in check? I meet with our practice manager monthly. Of course, we had set a goal of within six months, we were going to have accounts receivable that at least fits on one page. (laughs) (laughs) And we, we met that and then have it at zero now. 
What we meet about accounts receivable now is basically just going over two large accounts that we have in the field. We make multiple visits to these farms monthly. And so we allow them to accumulate those invoices, but also keep a card on file to run that at the end of the month. Right. So the accounts receivable part of our monthly meeting is just extremely short now because the only things on that list are those two big farms that we see in the field and then any horses that are being hospitalized or kept for fitness or rehab. Great. So other than making sure your accounts receivable doesn't extend to two pages, what other measurements are we using to determine how well you're doing with accounts receivable? We'll start with you, Patrick. So I've kind of gone back through our account receivable, trying to see what the average time is to when we're actually paid. Yes, for most clients, I'd probably say 50, 60% of them, you know, we do payment is due at the time of service. And some of those have a card on file, some we collect at the farm. And then others, you know, kind of based off the honor system, you know, we do email invoices that they can pay directly through a practice software. It's got a little link there and they can pay it quickly. And so... On the bottom of that, on the, on the footer, it says, you know, payment is due you know, immediately. Um, usually we'll give them a couple of weeks. And usually if, if it's not paid within about two to three weeks, you know, then we'll give them a call, text, that kind of thing. But the average time that, you know, an invoice is paid for us, I mean, it's usually less than about 10 days. That's a metric I kind of follow. Right. And how about yourself, Wendy? Yeah. So we calculate our DSOs. So that's days sales out keep an eye on that. Um, I like to keep it below 10, ideally. When we're on our game, we can usually have it down in the six and seven range, which is happy, healthy cash flow. And so days sales, outstanding. That's just so everybody else listening to it. It's sort of like on average, the amount of days it takes you to get paid on average from a client. So you're saying that you're usually around 10 days. I think Patrick said around the same time. Ideally, you get to around six days as opposed to, I know I uh, have visited some practices where it's 45, 60 days. And, and the challenge is we have to pay our bills in 30 days, if not before. And anything over 30 days, it's money that we actually have to borrow against ourselves to pay our bills because we're basically lending our clients money. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. How about yourself, Liz? Do you do anything differently? Any other kind of metrics that you can look at to gauge on a month-to-month basis how you're doing? Not really. I mean, at this point, we consider it a failure if there's anybody on that list that is not either at those two big farms or currently in our clinic. I will uh, just sort of share a little personal story. Just, you know, now that we've had this metric out there, it's like, you know, 10 years ago, it was January. So I'm in the Northeast and the winter is our slowest time of the year. You know, January, February, March is slow. And I was looking at it was beginning of January and we are 100 days outstanding, 100 days. And yeah, I, I had a freak out uh, because like, how am I going to get through this winter? I mean, it's a slow time of year anyhow. And this is an interesting tidbit is I had depended on a manager who was telling me, oh yeah, everything is fine. I'm depositing all the checks. We're all good, blah, blah, blah. I found out that she hadn't been doing all that. And so long story short, we dismissed her and we found like drawer fulls of checks and what have you that she hadn't deposited and everything. So it was nice to know that we could deposit it. But really, we made a goal to getting ourselves down to 30 days average on accounts receivable. And we transitioned, similar to what Liz was saying, is we just told all of our clients, we're payment at time of service for new clients. 
there were some we grandfathered in because they had been so good, but we sort of gave them a heads up that if you start to stray or you take too long, we're going to revert to payment of time of service. And honestly, the only two people that made a squawk about it were those that were really bad to pay anyhow. We were pretty happy to get rid of them anyhow. I had received a bunch of questions and a lot of people on the AEP uh, Facebook page, the members Facebook page, submitted some questions. So I thought I'd ask the three of you how you would uh, deal with this. Liz, let's start with you. How do you process any kind of guilt you may have when you're having to deny someone services based on their inability to pay? Yeah, so that's always tough. You know, I mean, we all take an oath and we all have tender heartstrings, no doubt. And I'd have to say that the only way, I don't know that this gets easier, but the only way that you learn to be more firm is just with time. When I first got out, I allowed so many situations to treat horses, knowing that I'm probably not going to get paid for it. And after so many times of doing that, you do start to realize that you're just not capable to make a difference in all the others if you can't keep the doors open and keep things going. So I think that with time, it gets a little bit easier to be brave and stand firm in that. We're blessed over a long period of time to be able to have a a lot of longstanding clients that we don't necessarily have to have those difficult conversations with. But I keep a, probably everybody has that file or that drawer that you have all your your thank you notes and success stories in. And if I'm ever feeling down for not being able to help somebody due to financial reasons, and I can't find a creative way to make it a little more affordable for them, then, you know, I just go to that and remind myself that I can't help these thousands of other horses if I cannot pay my team and pay my utilities and pay my taxes and pay my insurance. And that's what it simply boils down to. So it is hard to internalize and process sometimes, but we got to do the best we can with what we've got. Sure. How about yourself, Patrick? How do you deal with that internal guilt about that? It's hard. I mean, it's hard to tell somebody no, especially early on. I mean, I think as veterinarians, we really struggle with that. And I think there's a lot of moral injury associated with that guilt. For us, and and, typically what I try to do is I try to give the client options to try and you know, not to say a hard no. And right now there's a lot of fantastic options. Care credit has great terms for the client um, to spread payments out. As I mentioned before, we do have a wellness plan that actually it's monthly payments. If they have an emergency, they get half off of services on an emergency. So it gives them a little bit of insurance there too. I think there are options out there now for clients where you don't have to just say no. You can kind of put the ball back in their court and help them make a decision. And I'll ask the same question to you, Wendy, too, but I'm just like, this is for yourself, but you know, you have a lot of associates. How do you handle that with your younger associates who are, you know, maybe new to the profession and have that guilt? So we'll start with you and then the advice you share with your colleagues. Yeah. I mean, everything Patrick and Liz have said, as you age, you get sort of a more holistic view of the practice and the fact that when you do accept that bad debt, essentially you're hurting your employees who you value, you're hurting your associates, um, and you're hurting your practice's ability to grow and provide services to those good clients that you have. So I think sort of weighing that heavily, in, in addition to the horse that is in front of you, is important. 
one thing that we started doing a few years ago was offering our associates a $5,000 budget per year of discounts, essentially. And so they can use that however they'd like to throughout the year. If they want to use it all on one case, they can do that. Um, If they want to spread it out throughout the year, they can. And then we also have relationships with a couple of nonprofit groups that are there to um, help in some cases as well. So we do sort of have that in our back pocket to help those ones that really do pull at your heartstrings and that, you know, deserve the help. That's a great idea. Another question that came in and uh, I'd be interested in how practices with a significant amount of monthly billing manage their AR, for example, racehorse or show horse barns. Unfortunately, so many of us, we never meet our clients and the clients are not there. And so we're often having to rely on the trainer or their barn owner to sort of manage that information from their clients. So Liz, you you talked about you had some big barns in the area. So how do you keep them in check? The challenging part can be on some of these barns that bring client horses in under the trainer and they're new and we go out and do work on those horses. And like you said, we sometimes don't even contact the owner. Those are the only times that my practice manager has to kind of do some fast, fancy work to make contact with that owner and get our new client paperwork filled out. We do have a little leeway there, but I, the owner of those two big farms that I'm talking about are very good with what they do. And they go to bat for me if needed, which is great. They do have the understanding that if for some reason a client of theirs leaves with an outstanding invoice, that it goes on to their invoice at that point in time. They're business people as well. And luckily they're they're very good to work with. We did take on another large farm and it was a nightmare. They were late themselves with their monthly payments and their clients. They basically didn't go to bat for us with their clients. And they they just simply didn't last very long. And that's a hard pill to swallow because it was a lot of sports medicine work and it was a lot of horses to work on in one place. And it was a, you know, a lucrative stop with some very, very nice athletes to work on. But it's just simply at this point in time, especially with where our industry is going with demand being so much more than supply, health and mental well-being of us, you just, I guess if I had any advice, as hard as a pill it seems to swallow for some of those large accounts, if they're, if they don't go to bat for you and they're not on your side, then I just don't know that that makes it fun anymore. How about yourself, Patrick? Yeah, Matt, I think you're right there. You know, I really think, especially if you develop that relationship with the trainer, with that barn owner, you know, they can really be your biggest advocate in terms of they do the work behind the scenes of making sure that their clients all have their bills paid on time. And it's just, they set the precedent. So you really don't have to, you don't have to hound them. The clients just know if I'm going to be at this barn and this is my trainer, these are the expectations for me. But I was in a barn yesterday where it does get tough when you've got multiple parties involved for one horse. I was at a dressage barn yesterday, but for one horse, there was there's an owner, there's a leasee, there's a trainer, there's an assistant trainer. And I'm there with the assistant trainer and I'm really big on communication. I made sure that we at least shot a text and spoke to in some regard to these other people involved in this course on treatment before we did the treatment, both to make sure that they're okay with that and we're too okay with invoice as well. But it can be really convoluted with situations like that on you know, who's okay with what. Now, have you had a situation like Liz was talking about where the trainer hasn't gone to bat for you? And like, how do you make that decision? Because that was a question somebody else asked, but this is a good time to ask it. 
the trainer could be the deadbeat who pays, but the rest of the barn is amazing and everybody else pays. What do you do in that situation? That's really hard, especially whenever that's a, I mean, that's a key person and they're the, you know, the key to a lot of really good accounts. I think it takes balancing, I guess, the weight of their influence on how hard you want to be on them. But I mean, for us, I mean, thankfully we have not been in that situation, but you know, we just have the expectation as the, the payments do at the time. Mm-hmm. Right. Wendy, does this ring familiar to your practice? To some extent. I mean, I, I think um, for a lot of us, the trainers often aren't super wealthy people. The clients tend to have a little bit right. more money. So sometimes it is the trainers that are a bit of a slow pay. If it's in good faith and we might give them a little bit more slack than we would give the normal client as long as um, we feel like they are going to come through. And if they just need a little bit of extra management from your office staff. But if it becomes a truly dysfunctional relationship with the trainer, we usually let that go, unfortunately. Yeah. So what happens then if you have one of these clients? Again, we never see our clients. We often are already communicating with texting or emails. And all of a sudden, even though you have a credit card on file, they rack up a huge bill, whether it's you know maybe an emergency or there's a lot of extra work that was unplanned. You go to run the credit card and payment is a decline. Liz, how do you handle that when you've got that one person who's been good all along and then oof, they hit a crunch? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess I've got enough of a relationship with most of our clients that if somebody's been a good payer and they've all, it's always gone through and then their card gets denied, either myself or our practice manager would probably give them a call and just ask what's going on. Sometimes it might be that there's something going on with that card, but if they're truly in a in a bind, then obviously you know we need to have a conversation about how we can get this back on track and potentially cut back on anything elective until we can get that paid. Right. How about yourself, Patrick? Yeah, I think it's all about that relationship, and you know, especially somebody that's been a great client for years, and you know, they've always paid their bill. I think some, I guess, empathy in that that scenario is definitely definitely warranted. Maybe they had a, a life price or something. If it takes them a couple of weeks to get that right, that's okay. You know, if it got to where what, what can happen, I feel like, is the communication breaks down or they stop answering your calls, then you start to lose a little bit of empathy whenever they're not working with you. But if somebody's honest and you know really is trying to make things right, I have no problem helping them out, mm-hmm. but it's where you can't get a hold of them. That's the worst. That That's an issue. That's the worst. Any uh, words of advice, Wendy, of your own experiences in your practice? Yeah, I think being really proactive with the communication is key. And then we'll sometimes offer them other options. Like if your credit card is maxed out, can we look into care credit for you or, you know, the six month no interest plans or something to help you out, scratch pay see if there's another way we can accomplish that that is helpful for the client. I guess the dilemma gets to, and I know in my own practice, this is a fairly common subject. And that is you have a client that, you know, maybe you're on, you're discussing things with, but then they get an emergency and, you know, they haven't paid their bill in three months. How do you handle that? Patrick, have you encountered that? Yeah, I have. Situations like that, I try not to, to give them a hard no that, hey, no, I won't come take care of this horse. But that has happened where we've had to say, hey, you, know, you might need to call another practice because maybe there's been some dishonesty in the past, that kind of thing. But um, it's hard whenever somebody's not current with you and then you know you're going to rack up another $600 invoice for them. It's a hard spot to be in. Yeah, no kidding. 
Last set of questions, which kind of all ties in from the associate's point of view, and a couple of uh, people commented a message that they're paid on production and production collected. So then there's a, a level of trust or a systems in place that the, the practice is going to do what they can to collect the money or send you out to clients that are, are going to pay. But it seems like there's a couple of associates that sort of messaged me to say that that doesn't necessarily always happen. So any advice that we can give associates to ensure that or how they can, I guess, it's more of a communication internally, get paid for what they have done based on collected, even though they've done all the work and they've, you know, they're just basically being told who to go out and see. So Wendy, do you have any advice on that? Yeah. Um, as a practice owner, I, I take a lot of responsibility. If I have put the associates in a bad pay situation because the practice has not done due diligence on collecting payment, I that is our fault for the most part. And we're going to pay the associate on those funds. If it's a situation where the associate was the one that dropped the ball and didn't follow through on the practice policies, that's kind of a different scenario, obviously. Sure. But um, I think the, the practice has to you know, have the wide shoulders in that situation and be the one that takes responsibility for setting things up right in the first place and, and keeping to those protocols. It's, it's only fair. And how do you determine that? And how do you communicate that to your associates that here's what we're responsible for? We have really candid conversations about the expectation is that payment is due at the time of service, except for, you know, this handful of clients. And those are clearly annotated in the software and they can access that software at any time and look that up. And they know they can call the practice manager if there's a question about somebody and have those communications so that we're not putting them in a bad situation or doing everything we can to not put them in a bad situation. How does that work in your practice, Patrick? I think it's on us. It's on the practice owner to make sure systems are in, in place and you've got a good culture of you know how you collect. It would not be fair to send my associate out in a situation where somebody I know is probably not going to pay and it's going to be a long time for them to pay. And you know, she doesn't get her production check because of that. And that, that's not fair. That's on us. It is implied that, you know, most of our clients could do collect at the time of service and that needs to be followed through. But if there are a handful, just like Wendy was saying that maybe we have cards on file at the office, everybody has to do their part and you have to have the systems in place to be fair to the associate. One last question. And it's just, you know, I'll start with you, Liz. And it's just basically, if you had any final words of advice that you'd share to other members of what you think has been the instrumental element in the success of your accounts receivable program? Sure. Yeah. I think with us, it was just setting a policy and without exception, standing by that policy, no matter what potential negative side effects could come from it and talking about potentially losing a couple of clients. But I'm with Patrick, you know, the ones the, the few that decided to peel out when we had that policy, they weed themselves out as the ones that drain your energy that you're chasing, chasing down, not the type of A or B client that you strive to, to look forward to seeing. So I would say, I think, unfortunately, in my situation, I had to kind of get a, a belly full of it before I got bold and brave enough to stand up for myself and my time. But I would encourage people younger or anybody starting out a practice or going on your own or whatever it may be, adopt this policy from day one and stand by it. Great. Thanks. How about yourself, Patrick? Any words of advice? What was the essential element that has made your system work so well? 
my hats off to you, Liz, for, you know, making that switch, you know, years into the practice, you know, we, we started off on day one, you know, with that policy and made things much, much easier. But I feel like if we had not, if we had to make that transition, you know, years into it, it would have been hard. And I feel like there would have been some pushback there. But we were able to be, you know, pretty profitable right off the bat. Because of that, whenever six years ago, you know, my wife and I uh, really had nothing to our to our name at all. You know, a lot of lot of student debt. Um, just bit off a practice loan too to kind of get started. We were very fortunate. we because of this policy right away. You know, we were profitable and we we're able to you know pay our bills and all that. But I worry that if we had not, I don't know if we would have has been as successful. Right. Last word, yours, Wendy. Setting up the client expectations from the get-go, for sure. And um, that's just the way it is with your policy. And you can say it nicely and compassionately. And then more importantly, as your practice grows, having the support staff to make sure that that all happens and having those key people in place, because you're going to get to a size where you can't manage all of those accounts individually. So um, enabling, educating, training the staff members to have those conversations with clients and just um, stay on top of everything becomes really important. And we're lucky to have the technology that we do these days to make the invoicing really fast and to be able to send out those um, payment links and make all that happen really efficiently. The theme I'm hearing through this is that the tables have turned, the clients need us more now. And so we can be a little bit choosier in that accounts receivables is very much like a preventable disease. If we sort of maintain what we need to do at the very beginning, it just doesn't happen. It's a great analogy. So. I'd like to thank all three of you. This has been really uh, enlightening, and I'm sure any of our members listening to this will get some great tidbits. So thank you all very much. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. For more resources to help you in daily practice, please visit the AAP's website at aaep.org. Beringer Ingelheim's equine health solutions don't just come in the form of medicine. From our vaccine and EGUS assurance programs, To our equine practice enrichment program, we offer a wide range of services dedicated to helping individual veterinarians and entire practices succeed in their business environment. To learn more about all the services we offer, contact one of our expert team members by visiting bi-vetmedica.com slash company slash contact.